Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Today on the podcast, it's just us. Drew and I have been talking since we started the podcast about having an episode like this where we kick around, you know, some things that are going on in AMTA right now, some topics that we talk about off the microphone fairly often, and that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to go through a couple of different topics that we find interesting and that we hope you'll find interesting as well. But first, of course, we've got the board meeting in just a couple of days, and we had an awesome conversation with Will Warahay, AMTA president. We can't thank him enough for taking over an hour to just sit down and break down so many interesting issues. And Drew, obviously, with the board meeting, you know, just a couple of days away, you know, anything, you know, you found from Will's conversation to be particularly interesting as we're looking towards what's going to happen at the meeting? Yeah, I was really encouraged by a lot of our conversation with Will in that I think that a lot of in our political climate, we see a lot of politicians and presidents who, uh, you know, make a lot of claims of what they're going to do, and then there's not a lot of follow-up. And I like seeing that um, Will, um, to compare him to our politics, is kind of uh, silly, but uh, he's got real tangible goals that he wants to accomplish as president. And uh, I think that a lot of them are really doable. The one that to me is most encouraging um, was the judging pool. Um, obviously, it was an idea that I kind of have thought about and tossed around a lot. But to hear that he has the same idea and that they're pursuing it is really encouraging to me. And I'm excited to see where that goes. As far as the board meeting specifically, though, I, I'm excited to to see what they do on a lot of these motions. I think that we kind of talked about a lot of them, and I thought that a lot of what he said made a lot of sense, and I'm I'm encouraged by it. I'm excited to see these live tweets and see how they go uh, and, and how these motions end up falling. I agree with all of that. I think our conversation with Will was interesting for a number of reasons, and we talked about this on the podcast, but he was very candid with us. And I really appreciated that, you know, it would have been easy for him to sort of give general answers and and not go into a lot of specifics, but he had a lot of really specific things. We had a really interesting exchange with him based on a question that Drew asked uh, about the board meeting itself and how the board meeting operates that I want to take a listen to here real quick. Uh, I didn't make it into last week's episode, but it's a conversation, a quick exchange we had with him about how the board meeting works and the logistics of motions and the process at the meeting. The board in general follows Robert's rules of procedure, Robert's rules of order. I don't remember the exact title, but the, the, the basic premise being that any member of the board, any member of the voting body can make a motion. Uh, And quite literally, all that involves is me opening an email right now and sending an email to the secretary saying, I make a motion that we only have one regional next year, or I make a motion that Georgia Tech gets to go to nationals every single year. If I were to send that email, that motion would go to a committee, would be considered, would be voted down, and then would appear on the tabled motions for the agenda. So any motion that is submitted is on the minutes. Um, that's part of kind of the transparency of, of what we try to do. So any motion that is submitted by any member of the board will show up on the agenda and the minutes subsequently. Uh, so the fact that something appears as a tabled motion 
that's that's quite literally all it means is that one or a few members of the board had an idea uh, and they thought enough of that idea to submit it as a motion. Um, like I said, after that happens, it gets referred to a committee. Uh, the committee debates it, talks about it, can amend the motion. Uh, and then the committee has three options. It can advance it with a positive recommendation, meaning the, the committee thinks it's a really good idea and we should do it. They can advance it with no recommendation, meaning they think it's probably something that should be talked about, but they're not really sure how they feel about it. Or they can vote to table it, which means they don't think it's a good idea and that we probably shouldn't do it. Um, there is a mechanism to remove motions from the tabled motions you know, by uh, five signatures, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, if you get five board members to, to sign signatures and if they turn that into me at the board meeting, they can have a motion be considered to be untabled. So that's kind of a two-step process is first we debate and vote on whether or not it should be untabled. And then there's a separate debate and vote on whether or not the motion should be put into, uh, put into effect. Um, so the fact that something appears on the tabled motion should not be an indication to any, uh, anyone out there that that may or may not be something that AMTA is seriously considering doing. Uh, it is just an idea that some people on the board had. And we really appreciate the fact that Will was willing to sit down and break down everything that's going to go on. And I think that a lot of people in AMTA are looking forward to how the current board and the current leadership is going to transition uh, with some of these issues that are facing us. Today's conversation, though, is not about the board meeting. Today's conversation is going to move to a couple of different topics that we've been thinking about. And the primary topic for today's conversation is invitational tournaments. Now, as I'm sure almost everyone who's listening to this podcast knows, invitational tournaments are sort of the wild west of AMTA. Just as a quick primer, obviously AMTA hosts the regionals, opening round championship series or orcs, and the national championship tournament in February through April of each mock trial season. But from October to January, schools all across the country, as we mentioned last week, in excess of 65 different schools, host invitational tournaments to give people practice, allow people to try out theories and, you know, go from there. And what's so interesting about these tournaments is even though they are using the AMTA case materials and generally enforce the AMTA rules, AMTA is not affiliated with this tournaments and doesn't exert any control over them. So we wanted to have a conversation as two people who have some experience in the area about invitationals. So let's start with this, Drew, which is Haverford obviously has hosted a tournament the past two years and is hosting one again this coming year. So what led you to host an invitational and what are your thoughts on your approach going into your third year hosting the excellent Black Squirrel Invitational? Well, thank you for that, Ben. Uh, I can say that it's been a, a long journey, but an exciting one. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have been involved in both of the previous two Black Squirrel Invitationals as the TAB director, and this year I will be one of our two uh, co-tournament directors. And uh, it's a really exciting thing to be a part of. I think that going back to why we initially wanted to host a tournament. Um, I had numbers of conversations with our, our old president, Jordan McGuffey, who was um, the, the tournament director for the last two years. And she and I really were passionate about 
getting Haverford's name out there. I think that that was kind of one of our primary reasons for wanting to host a tournament was it, it, you know, it literally puts your name on AMTA's website. Uh, I think that that's a really big part of it. Um, it's also about, you know, getting to know other teams. Uh, there's something really cool about having other teams host. You have email correspondences with them. You start getting to know people. I think that uh, a lot of the most well-known mockers um, to most people are people that run tournaments and you are kind of forced to email with them and exchange with them. And you'll talk with them a couple times at the tournament, I'm sure. Those are just people that you start to get to know. And it's cool to be a part of that and to get to know a lot of other programs because in terms of you know the importance in AMTA of getting to know people, that helps you get into other tournaments. Uh, invitationals are this really weird existence in AMTA, as you've pointed out, Ben. But going to good tournaments makes all the difference in the world when it comes to the AMTA sanctioned tournaments. And it's it's so important to get into those good ones. And having connections with those programs is what helps you get there. The last reason I think that we wanted to host was, you know, money. I mean, every program, you know, needs more money for the most part. Um, and it's helpful to have some sort of a revenue flow. Um, and, you know, it's... It, it's also convenient. You know, it, it's one tournament that you get to send one to, you know, as many teams as you want, um, where you don't have to pay any invitational fees. You don't have to buy a hotel for the most part. Um, probably not going to have to spend too much money on gas. Um, and that's really helpful. I mean, that's that makes our, our fall budget a lot, lot uh, lower than it would have been. Um, so there's definitely a lot of reasons why we host. But, you know, Ben, you, you also host a tournament and, you know, what made you guys get into it? Was it similar reasons or any that I missed? A lot of the same. It, it, I think about back to, you know, I came to UMBC as a transfer student in 2011. I was a junior. And uh, Travis Bell, who's one of our other coaches, was working on starting a mock trial team. And so I jumped in and he and I worked on it together. And when we started out in 2011, we were very fortunate that our great friends at American University invited us to what was then, I think, the second annual tournament that they hosted. They've now transitioned to hosting a regional, but they hosted an invitational at the time. And quite frankly, if we hadn't gotten to go to that tournament, we wouldn't have had any clue. Okay, I was about to say we wouldn't have any clue what we were doing. We still didn't have any clue what we were doing. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I always think about we accidentally won round one and then eventually played a Duke team that had portions of the team that won the national championship that year. So we had a little bit of a rude awakening to mock trial. But that invitational experience was so, so, so important. And so as, you know, we went forward and as we got better, uh, getting beaten up pretty good at several different invitationals along the way, I think that's what inspired me to want to eventually host one myself as we've been to, to be quite frank, we've been to some really good invitationals and we've been to some pretty bad invitationals. And I think a lot of people have had that experience. And so for me, I'm a details person. I like having control over things so that I can make sure they run well. And when we ran the Charm City Classic the first two years and we the first two years we did it, we co-hosted with Stevenson University. We've now transitioned to co-hosting a regional with them and then we host our invitational on our own. I really focused on trying to make sure that everything ran as smoothly as possible because I think it's important to give that experience to other schools so that you have that opportunity to compete against each other in a clean setting so everyone gets practice. So I think there's a lot of the same reasons. Money certainly plays into it as it does for everyone. You know, 
we're broke. A lot of other teams are broke. It's sort of part of the fun of trying to convince colleges who don't want to pay attention to what we do that it's worth it. But I, I think that invitationals are an area of AMTA that needs a little bit more thought. And, and I'm very interested to see how AMTA continues to have any influence on them going forward. Well, you know, it's actually, it's funny that you mentioned your, your detail oriented way of doing tournaments, Ben, because uh, while I wasn't on the team that went to Charm City, uh, the Habitat team that went there two years ago, um, I can say that I remember when they got back from that tournament and they were all like, that was just the most amazing tournament we've ever been at. Like it was so well run. And uh, I've never told you about this, Ben, but we, uh, we were inspired by the war rooms that you guys had. They, they came back and were like, this was so cool. Like they have these war rooms. It's just like the coolest thing ever. And we have to do it at our tournament. So uh, it was cool to kind of uh, adapt that. And we tried to do something like that at uh, our tournament last year. Um, but mm-hmm. I will say that uh, to all of our listeners, Ben hosts an absolutely amazing tournament and detail oriented doesn't go far enough. He really has everything dotted and crossed and it's, it's an amazing tournament to go to, and I'm excited to go to Charm City this upcoming year. Well, that's very kind of you to say, and I appreciate that. And I got to judge at your tournament last year and had a very, very similar experience. Uh, and I'm sure our listeners love listening to us compliment each other's tournaments, but we're both <laughs> right on that. I think Black Squirrel and Charm City are going to be good tournaments this year. I hope so. And, you know, it's it's interesting because for me, jumping into the role of tournament director this year, I, I had a lot of ideas about what I wanted to make a tournament be and how I want it to be run. And one of the biggest things that I, I wanted to do is I wanted to get our name out early. I said to myself, you know, one of the big things that tournaments that schools like is knowing really early on when is this tournament, you know, what are the details about it, and getting that information out as soon as possible. Because the earlier you do it, honestly, you have – you know, no one's already scheduled a tournament for that weekend then to a certain extent. You kind of hopefully can eliminate a lot of the issues that you run into regarding, you know, teams being like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we already have a weekend. We already have a tournament we're going to that weekend. But it's not all good. And I'll I'll tell this anecdote. So um, Haverford being very close to University of Pennsylvania and my brother, uh, Alec, he's definitely not going to be listening to this, but he goes to UPenn and as a result, uh, he's on the mock trial team there. And as a result, I'm very good friends with the Penn mock trial team and I've spoken to them a lot. And, uh, you know, they obviously host the Quaker Classic, which is a great tournament in itself. Um, And so when we were hosting our tournament, one of the big things that I wanted to do was coordinate with them a little bit, you know, get really early on and, you know, make sure that our two tournaments could work with each other instead of against each other. Um, They normally host their tournament in the third week of November, um, which this year was going to be November 17th and 18th. Um, And that was a weekend that I had looked at and I was like, oh, I really like that weekend. I want to do it then. So I emailed them um, in God, it was, it was probably May. It was just after nationals. And I, you know, I emailed their president, uh, Roy Michael. And I said, Hey, you know, uh, I know that you guys normally host on this weekend, but I think that we really want to try and do it that weekend. This is some of the details about our tournament. Like I really, really want to do it then. And he was really nice about it. He said, yeah, you know, let's, let's make something work. We'll try and move our date to a different one. Um, and I was like, okay, great. Awesome. Um, so I, you know, had in my mind, I was like, okay, November 17th, 18th, that's our weekend. 
And I emailed the courthouse and I was like, okay, you know, this is the weekend we want to do it. Can that work? And about two weeks later, they responded and said, hey, hate to break it to you, but we can't do that weekend. It's not available. But the weekend before it on the 10th and 11th is open. So I was like freaking out and was like, well, we, we need to get it. Like we just need to get the courthouse absolutely mandatory. So I was like, okay, we'll take 10th and 11th. And I immediately emailed back Roy Michael and got a response from their tournament director, Isabella, who said, oh, I wish you guys weren't doing it on the 10th and 11th. That's the date that we moved our tournament to. Of course. And uh, yeah, it was a, a very unfortunate event. And unfortunately, they'd already emailed a couple of teams and told them it was that weekend. And I had just confirmed with the courthouse and and we were like, oh, well, what have we done now? We, you know, we, we just kind of messed ourselves up by trying to over-coordinate. Um, so I got to give a shout out to Penn and apologize for my overzealousness there. But um, it's, it's a tough thing to balance, Ben, because, you know, I want to be proactive. I wanted to get it out early. You know, we've you know, already finalized our list now, which is, you know, awesome. I'm excited that we've been able to get so much done early on. But, you know, you run into these problems and you, you, you do have to kind of bide your time a little bit. And if I've learned any lesson that I'll pass on to the program next year, it's wait till you've heard back from the courthouse to email anyone. Well, and that I think that's right, obviously. And it gets to an underlying thing, too, which is this constant balance of teams that need to get better, right? And they need to get better and so they need to compete and in order to compete you need to get into some of these tournaments and a lot of these tournaments are not always the easiest thing they'll they'll send their invites out like you know to be quite candid like both of our tournaments have you know several months before the season starts you know before a lot of these smaller programs maybe have started to to kick things into gear and i always think back to when we were a fledgling program and couldn't get the time of day uh, from some programs that we're pretty close with now. And, and that's not a shot at anyone. You know, I'm sure some out there could probably accuse us of doing the same now. We try not to be that way. But to me, I think like like I think you're doing exactly the right thing in having teams plan early and send out, you know, your dates early and get everything, you know, planned out early. Cause I'm the type of person people, I'm sure some people out there listening know, you know, I sent emails uh to people the day after the NCT, you know, like, Hey, congratulations on your X place finish. You want to invite us to your tournament in seven or eight months. Um, <laughs> and you know, they're, they're very kind. You know, we haven't slept since nationals replies were very appreciated, but I think that's such an interesting issue is how do we as a community balance the challenge of, yeah, we want great teams to come to our tournaments, but it's also important to look around and say, who are some of these smaller schools who would really benefit from an invite to come and learn from more established programs? And, you know, that brings up such a great point in that as a younger program that, you know, exactly as you've said, you know, both our programs have been lucky enough to kind of grow and crest the the mock trial world and get into nationals. But, you know, there are so many great young programs out there that it's hard for them to get into these good tournaments because they just don't the a they they don't know to e who to email uh, b they they don't have the connections necessary to get into them and and realistically if you're not on the invite list you know it's hard to get in for the most part and it's it's a sad thing but that's just the way the top tournaments work um and and it's 
it's frustrating to a certain degree, but the one thing that's kind of cool for us has been that as we, you know, hopefully are creating a tournament that can be a, a seen as a top tier tournament, um, uh, maybe not Gamtee or, or downtown or anything, but, you know, hopefully getting up there, um, we really emphasized, you know, okay, we want all these great teams and that's good. But if there's a team that has been loyal, that they've been coming to our our tournaments in the past, you know, we want to, you know, do them some justice and and still give them a spot at our tournament, even if they may not be in the top, you know, 30 TPR teams, you know, they're still a good program and we want to, you know, respect that and especially if they've been going to our our tournaments in the past we don't want to just leave them on the wayside and that's kind of to me where those connections matter and i i like to believe that those matter for other tournaments as well um i know that you see a lot of teams that they kind of routinely invite the same group that has been going to their tournaments in the past and you know, it's nice that those connections matter. Um, it's unfortunate that it can be tough for other teams to get in, but it's it's a cool part of the invitationals for sure to be able to continue those relationships that you've had with programs. Yeah, I that's I think the core of this is you know we have a number of teams that we play all the time that we're good friends with. You know, our very first episode you asked me about College Park, and of course we're great friends with them and American and lots of other programs around here. And they obviously come to our tournament and we've gone to tournaments that they've hosted before. But at the same time, I really have a soft spot for a lot of those smaller programs, but I'm also the type of people who likes one of the type of people who likes to have my field set by mid August, by the time the case comes out, because it makes everything easier. Plus we're hosting a tournament two week, two months after the case is released this year and so you kind of have to plan out a little bit earlier but i would really encourage people let me say this in reality no one really cares in a way that matters in the long run what the average tpr of the teams at your tournament is i know it's a cool thing to cite and, and like drew you guys are citing it and you should and this is not a shot at you by any stretch of the imagination but like as a coach of a team that used to have to, I, I tell a story sometimes about the first time we got into a particular tournament that was hard to get into. Uh, I probably bordered on stalking their president because I, I just really wanted to get into this tournament that was convenient for us. And thankfully we did. And we've got a great relationship with that program now, but it took so much to even get their attention. There are other top tier tournaments that just won't respond to anything. It wouldn't matter if I sent them a ransom note, they wouldn't respond to it, you know? And don't don't do that. Don't be like that. I get it if you're a top tier team and you only invite other top tier teams. I respect that. That's your decision. But don't be a jerk who ignores the communications of teams that are just trying to get better, you know, and maybe think about reserving a couple spots every year at your tournament for teams that are up and coming, for teams that are really trying to break through because it's that attitude that drives me crazy. That attitude of We've had success because we've got money and we've got coaches or we've got pedigree. And and that's not to take away from anyone's success, but that attitude of because of that, we're going to forget about where we came from, even if it was 20 or 25 years ago. Everyone's mm-hmm. mock trial team was bad at some point. You know, UVA started out bad, Rhodes started out bad, and now they're, of course, elite. And maybe they weren't as bad as UMBC was when we started, but <laughs> I... I end up sounding like a broken record when I say don't be that program 
that is just a jerk to these other programs who are just trying to get better. Uh, and you don't have to invite like all unranked teams to your tournament, but think about that when you're crafting your field. I think it's a great point, Ben, because there are a lot of teams that I see that are really proactive and they, you know, as you said, you know, the week after nationals, they send out an email. I mean, I know I did the same, Hey, you know, I want to know more about your tournament. And, you know, especially, you know, it's, it shocked me to find that, you know, frankly, even for us, you know, as a team that just went to nationals and, and in my opinion, did pretty well, there were tournaments that still haven't responded to me. And I, you know, I've followed up with them and it, it's, it's so frustrating because, you know, I think to myself, wow, if, if they're not even going to respond to me, you know, there's just no chance for, as you're citing a lot of these new to programs. And I think it's such a great point because at a certain point, it's like, what does it matter? Like it, it, to be frank, you know, let's talk about a great tournament, Gampty downtown. I think that they rarely ever have a team outside of a top 20 or 30 TPR. Which, you know, great. Like, that's awesome they have such a top-tier tournament. Let's say that they had, you know, one team that was at 200 TPR. Would that realistically change the finals that much? Would it realistically change that much? Like, no. Like, I mean, yeah, that team would probably not do super well. But can you imagine if that team went there and won a couple rounds? Like, what would that say to people? I mean, to me, that's super, super cool. And I just, like... I don't know. I think that we see every year kind of these Cinderella stories happening at AMTA tournaments because you have great teams competing with teams that are new. And, you know, the reality is that it's not the same teams that make it to nationals every year. And that's cool to me. I think that when we start to see our invitationals reflect more of what AMTA is, it's going to be a really cool time. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I mean, one of the things that I love about AMTA uh, and I, I don't mean my last rant to make it sound like I, there aren't things about this that I love because I think that invitationals are largely positive. But with regionals, you know, and I think Jonathan Woodward and others say it all the time, you walk in with the same odds as anyone else. And to continue my streak of making UMBC basketball references on the podcast, the 16 seed has as much of a shot at winning the tournament as the one seed. Everybody walks in the door on an equal playing field. And that to me is what's missing from invitationals that when your programs programs who host these tournaments don't give these other programs opportunities to get in the door it just preserves the the way that things exist where breaking into that top elite group of teams is near impossible because it's very insular so I guess getting back to just sort of thinking about our approaches, Drew, you guys obviously, so you hosted a great tournament the last two years, but then you go to nationals, you place at nationals, and now your field, quite frankly, is probably just below, you know, Gamty Cube downtown in terms of the caliber of teams. You know, I think UMBC at, what are we, 83 now, is the second lowest ranked team in your field. Uh, and I'm curious... How did you, in terms of when you reached out to teams and how you went about creating your list, what was your process coming off of uh, your national success in terms of how you approached that? So I think that there were a couple of things that played into our hand quite nicely. And I, I truly believe that the stars kind of had to align for us to get 
the type of response we did. And I, I'm, as you, I mean, I'm so pleased about our field. I think it's going to be an amazing, amazing tournament to everyone that's coming. I'm super excited about it. We're excited to have you. Um, and to those that didn't uh, get in, please understand that, you know, I, I never expected it to be as uh, elite a field as it became. Um, and I'm sure that many of you uh, would have been great assets to it. Um, I think that the, if you're looking for kind of the, the, what stars had to align, I think that the fact that nationals next year will be in Philadelphia really helped us. Um, I, I looked into it and was able to, you know, reserve, as I said, the the courthouse that nationals will be taking place at. And uh, there was a little one liner that I put in basically every email I sent to the to teams, which was, you know, we've got the courthouse, we've got the judges, all we're looking for now is the teams. Um, and, you know, I think that it's kind of cool to be able to get the nationals courthouse, the nationals judging pool, and then hopefully get then types of national competitors. Um, and I think that, I, I think that it, it's, it's lucky for us to be able to say those things. Um, but I think that a large part of it was, you know, the fact that we just done so well at nationals. I, I like to believe that that had something to do with it. Hopefully teams are going to be more receptive to a, a tournament that we've run. I would hope that teams that have gone to our tournament in the past have maybe said good things if anyone asked them about it. And I think that the the last thing that if you ever uh, talk to my tournament, my co-tournament director, Mariana, she'll tell you about this. I spent probably 30 minutes to an hour crafting each individual invite that we sent. And I, I, I took a lot of time just writing something personal to each team that we were inviting um, because a lot of the teams that we we're inviting were teams that we've played in the past, that we've interacted with, we've seen at tournaments. And I wanted to reflect that in my invitation of just, it's not just, hey, this is another tournament, but hey, this is that team that you played at Nationals, at Orcs, at whatever. You know, we had such a great time playing you. We'd love to have you guys back. And, you know, I think that it goes a really long way as someone who also has to schedule our fall season. For me, when I get an email that's just, hey, this tournament is happening on X date. Okay, great. That's helpful. But like, maybe I'm just like a little self-centered, but like, I like hearing when people are like, hey, like we played you this time and it was such a fun round. Like you guys were such a great program. Like we loved playing you guys. Like it doesn't decide what tournament I'm going to go to, but it definitely makes me more receptive to, to reading their invitation and, and, and giving them kind of a second glance. And I think that it took a lot to get the field that we did. Um, I think that there were things that were out of our control, as I said, with nationals and also the fact that, you know, Gampty normally hosts on that weekend and they didn't, that definitely helped a lot. Um, but I mean, I think that to people that are, you know, hosting tournaments that are looking, you know, how do they penetrate into that field? The biggest piece of advice I can give you is, you know, plan early, have it be really well run have as many judges as you can get and and just kind of keep doing what you're doing because people notice i think that the mock trial community is is very aware of what tournaments work and which ones don't oh, and sure. I, I i mean we don't even need to say names to know which ones work and which ones don't um but uh you know i'll, I'll say it on the podcast charm city works it's gonna be a top tournament in the next couple of years because ben knows what he's doing and i think that you know Teams that are going to go to those top to these top tournaments go because they know it's reliable. And so, Ben, you know, it, one of the interesting processes that I've had to introduce myself to was how to decide who to invite and who not to. And as someone that's been doing this for a little while, I want your take on how you decided to make that list. 
how did you decide when to send it what to, how to do all of that because it's it's not an easy thing to do i've found it's it's not and it look it sucks when you set your field and you get an invite three or four you get an email a couple days later from a team that's like we'd really like to go to your tournament and you know you, you accommodate them when you can but sometimes you can't for me i you know it's it's more of a gut process for me you know i, I don't really look that closely at tpr i mean there are certain teams that uh we know and like and i'll invite them every year and and to be quite frank going back to the what i was referencing earlier about not being a jerk i think about and maybe this is petty but so be it i think about a couple of years ago we were at a tournament and we played a team that's from like within a couple hundred miles around us and their coach was really nasty to me about something it was a rules issue and i asked what i thought was a very reasonable question and this individual was just really really nasty and got really personal and that team the following two years reached out to me about our invitational and i did not invite them and i will freely admit i did not invite them because their coach was a jerk to me and maybe i shouldn't be that way but i think it, you know, maybe it's not fair to penalize the students for the actions of their coach. My students would probably feel that way. But <laughs> I think it's really important to know the teams that you're inviting, to know who they are, how they operate, and to say, hey, I know this team. We play them when we play them. They're fair and they try really hard. And sometimes they beat us and that's frustrating, but they beat us fair and square, you know? And so for me, with our list of teams that are coming, most of them are teams that we play pretty pretty frequently. If people reach out to me about the tournament, I do my absolute best to include them in the field uh, as long as there's enough space. So I think it's just really important that as you're making your tournament field, like I've sort of said before, that you think about a lot of different things about how you can help programs that are up and coming. Obviously, if a program just isn't ready to go to an early fall invitational, that's understandable. You know, that sometimes, you know, our tournament is one of the earliest in the country. There are programs in our area that I really like, but just realistically won't have a team ready to compete by that point. And I keep that in mind in terms of, you know, who I send initial invites to. So it's, it's a constant balance. It's a constant back and forth. But I will, like I said, I will freely admit that, I favor teams. I think it's more complicated than just people who are nice to me. Like it's more programs and teams that in my opinion, and in the opinion of my other coaches and my team do things the right way and, you know, reciprocate with kindness and civility and collegiality. When we walk into the courtroom, you know, there are programs in this region that are not that way and you will not find them on my tournament list. And, Quite frankly, if they asked me why they didn't get an invite, I would say that because I think it's important to be honest about those things. So that was sort of my process, and and it's not perfect. I'm sure you could poke plenty of holes in it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, if, you know, like what you were saying at the beginning, you know, if you go to a tournament and, you know, we went to a tournament in early, a couple different tournaments in early October for a couple of years and they were all fine, but I wasn't completely satisfied with any of the experiences. So I said, okay, I'm going to do my tournament there instead. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because I think that I, I, one of the big assets that I think that a lot of these established tournaments have is it's the, the institutional memory of these programs to be able to, to know what it takes to run a good tournament. 
and to have been to good tournaments, to have been to bad tournaments, and to see what works and what doesn't. Because as you're saying, you know, you go to a tournament that doesn't work very well, then you say, okay, well, I need to not do that. You go to a tournament that's run really well, they have war rooms, you say, wow, that was awesome. I'm going to do that too. And it makes a difference. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I initially was asking you, Ben, about the invites. And the reason why I ask is because we had a really interesting situation happen this year with our tournament where, you know, I, I initially was thinking, okay, you know, we'll, we'll invite a bunch of teams and most of them are going to say no, but that's fine. You know, that's why we'll send out a lot of invites. And we ended up sending out, God, I don't, I can't even count how many. And unfortunately, uh, and I, I sent all of them. I said, Hey, you know, you have a spot reserved, you know, let me know and you can register. And, uh, we had originally aimed for about 26 teams, and I remember about a week before our deadline, we were already at 27. And I was sitting there, and I was like, uh, "How many other teams haven't responded yet? Like, oh my goodness!" And it was a, a terrifying moment of like, "Well, I really hope that the other teams don't all say yes." And we've ended up with about 32 now, and I mean, we're, we're going to have to grow a little bit, but that's fine. But it, it was—it's a, a tough thing to navigate as a tournament host, you know, because you want to include so many teams. You want to be able to invite, you know, teams you're close with, teams that are good. And and it's a tough balance because, you know, for me, like I wanted to plan this as, as far in advance as possible. And I, I wanted to give teams enough time to make an educated decision on it while at the same time, not rushing them per se, but giving us enough time to, to you know, then develop our field. And if we need to pull from the wait list, pull from the wait list. And, and, and it's a tough tough thing to balance. And I think that it's one of those things where that institutional memory matters. Having more time where you can, tr you know, just troubleshoot and see what works and what doesn't improves tournaments. And maybe that's why some of these really successful tournaments are what they are. They've just been doing it for a really, really long time. I definitely think there's something to that. And I think the reverse, when you go to a tournament that has some hiccups, a lot of times it's you know, maybe a program that hasn't done it for as long or there's been a gap or, you know, there was a heavy transition turnover between the student run boards and things like that. But I think that that balance, it's so important to turn back the curtain on the process that different tournaments go through because you and I can sit here all day long and talk, you know, openly about our process. But we, of course, host a mock trial podcast. And as far as I know, none of these other tournaments have, you know, tournament directors that do. And I can't emphasize and just be honest with teams. If you if you don't have space in the field or if you've got, you know, 17 teams ahead of them on your invite list because of, that's just kind of the way it is. Just tell people that don't BS them with you know, we're waiting on this or that, or, you know, give them a fake date. Cause we, we've, we've had that. I've had that. It's happened less more recently, but I could go back and find emails where people sent me stuff that was, you know, just full of crap. It was just, you know, Nick Ramos managed not to swear on the podcast, so I'll do my best not to, but like, <laughs> it was ridiculous. And I, I look at that now and I'm like, you were just making things up. And so, uh, you know, and I've been on my soapbox for the last couple minutes about this topic, but it's one that's really close to home for me that, when you talk about your process, it's so important that invitational tournaments have that process that you think about, okay, let me be fair to the teams around me and to the, the teams that really want to go to this tournament while also trying to build the prestige of my tournament, as I know a lot of people care about. So 
it's it's a tough topic and as i mentioned at the beginning i'm very interested to see if amta ever reaches a little bit further into it because ironically and this is not a criticism necessarily but amta likes to sort of shrug and raise their hands about invitationals but amta would probably collapse pretty fast if all invitationals went away because they're they're critical you can't have a successful regionals orcs nationals season i mean it might still exist but it wouldn't be anywhere near what it was what it is without these teams who get to go to a lot of different invitational tournaments we've all played teams at regionals or been on teams at regionals that haven't competed before regionals and it's obvious who's done what in those situations and so for me you know i was really interested when you know we talked a little bit with will last week about amta raising the intellectual property fee and and that's one little thing where that didn't exist until a couple years ago and it's amta sort of reaching in and having and i know they're using it for fundraising but it's them saying hey, we don't have anything to do with this except you have to pay us money to host one. And, you know, I wonder, sometimes we have problems with too many tournaments on one particular weekend, and I wonder if they'd ever step in and do something about that. Or, you know, I personally think that they should be looking towards fall AMTA-sponsored tournaments, essentially a fall AMTA invitational setup, which I know would be wildly difficult. But I just, I'm very intrigued by the relationship between AMTA and Invitationals and where that's going. It really is an, an interesting relationship, Ben, because they have so little bearing on each other. I mean, it's crazy to think that a tournament could win Gampty, they could win Yale, they could win Downtown, and then go to Regionals and go four and four and not make it out. I mean, that's that that and that's the end of their season. There's no there's nothing in in the AMTAs in the AMTA season that has any bearing on the invitationals. And what's more, you could get, you know, do incredibly well at a tournament and then bomb at regionals and you may not get it. You know, there are a lot of tournaments where you may not even get invited back. And, and that's, that's crazy to me. I mean, how, how does that happen? But it, it does. It, it's, it's the reality of what invitationals are is that they're, they're so, they are so based on, you know, how have you done, you know, what's your TPR, how have you done in, in AMTA tournaments, and yet they have so little bearing on them. And I, I am intrigued by what you're talking about. I think that it would be really cool for AMTA to take more of a role in invitational season, but I think that there's there's something nice ab- and and relaxing about the current invitational structure where there is no involvement from, from AMTA in that you can have unstacked teams. You can try wild case series. You can have a little more fun. It's, it's to me a little more social in terms of, you know, you're kind of chilling with some, hopefully some other programs that you know, and you can chat with them and, and see your old friends. And I mean, we've said it before orcs and to a lesser extent, but still present regionals are just so stressful and so awful and as much pre- preparation as you can do through the imitational season, there's a just a stress that comes that that Friday or, or Thursday if it's a one two one tournament uh, that you get that night before where you go, oh my goodness, this could be my last weekend of mock trial this year. And let me tell you, as someone who is approaching their senior year, that terrifies me. I do not know what I'm going to do. All that I can wish for is that 
you know, I can at least go out on a good one, you know, and, and it's, it is crazy that, that it all kind of culminates so hugely in, in, in the empty season. And you do think it, it would be really cool if there was something in the fall, but I don't know how that would work. It would definitely be interesting though. Yeah, it, it would be a challenge and that's probably a topic for another day. But I, I think my sort of final thought on invitationals is, and like I said earlier, I, I get to be a broken record, but they have such an oversized influence on regionals and orcs, right? That you go to the best tournaments, you get to see some other teams. In their case, they're easy. You get to go scout if that's what you do. And then you walk into regionals and orcs and you're a little bit more prepared. And I want to see a world in which, you know, one of the things I talked about you to you, Drew, about off mic is I'm of the opinion with the new AMTA IP fees that AMTA, that if you're hosting an invitational using AMTA's case materials, that you should be required to list the name of your invitational, the dates of your invitational, and a, and a contact name and email on AMTA's website. Not a voluntary thing that if AMTA, if you're going to pay to rent essentially their case for your tournament, you should be required to disclose it to their members. And look, this is probably a little bit hypocritical because I haven't submitted the Charm City Classic to AMTA this year. There are lots of great tournaments that do submit and lots of tournaments that don't. But to me, the inclusivity, you know, I try to keep that in mind in how I made my field as, as I've talked about already. And I would like to see whether it's the AMTA community as a whole or AMTA putting their palm on things a little bit to say, Hey, we need to do a better job as a community of making invitationals more of a transparent process, more of a process that's beneficial to lots of different teams and lots of different programs. I am of the opinion that they should, if they're, you know, the IP fee is what it is that they should cap invitational fees. I'm sorry, but if this, if you're offering two rounds, four rounds over two days with two judges and your invitational fee is $500, that's absurd. You're just using it as a fundraiser at that point, And that's an aspect, but it's not, you know, a major, it's, it shouldn't be your only goal essentially. So I get it, right? Amta wants to keep their hands off of invitationals and I get that, but I really hope that whether it's through their influence or just through our community discussion and dialogue that we start doing a better job of saying, you know, we can do better. Not that invitationals are bad. They're awesome. We go to a ton of them. I'll probably be at 10 this year, but that we can uh, really grow the community through invitationals even better than how we're doing right now. You know, one thing that I wanted to add, Ben, because you were talking about posting on, on the AMTA website and, you know, I will fully admit, you know, we have not posted Black Squirrel on the Empta website just yet either. Um, I, I don't honestly know whether we will or not just because we already have our field set. So there's not a whole ton of point at this stage. Um, one program that I, I actually do want to call out um, is Rhodes. Rhodes is one of the only tournaments that I've ever seen. And, and it's by a top program. I mean, Rhodes is probably... I can confidently say they're the best small school and they're, you know, up there is one of the best programs in AMTA right now. Um, and they host a tournament that it's $25 to register for. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a regular tournament. It's two rounds Saturday, two rounds Sunday. It's hosted by one of the top tournaments by one of the top programs in the country. 
they could very easily be charging $250, $300 for this tournament. And year after year, they don't. And, and I actually do want to take a moment to, to congratulate Rhodes on doing that because I, I respect that. I respect that as a top, top program, you say, you know what, we're not going to be, you know, we're not going to be as exclusive as that. We, we really want to be more inclusive. We're going to have a low fee and we're going to make it more accessible to teams. I just think that that's, it's refreshing to see. So good on you, Rhodes. No, I, we've obviously never been to Rhodes tournament because it's it'd be a little bit of a hike, I think probably for both of us, but that's exactly, that's exactly what I'm talking about that. Look, not every program can only charge $25. I'm sure Rhodes probably has some independent support that allows them to do that. But think about, if, if you don't need to charge as much, you know, and it's not all about the invitational fees. It's about maybe not being, you know, tyrants about deadlines sometimes that if a particular school like UMBC uh, has a finance department that is not always the quickest and hopefully the, you know, Mar- University of Maryland system finance department doesn't listen to this podcast, but I think the <laughs> odds are pretty low, but you never know. But, you know, there have been times where I've had to reach out and say, hey, we are going to pay you, but I need two more weeks. And people are really understanding. And then there are times where tournaments are like, nope, pay by the deadline or you're dropped and we're sent, you know, we're putting on team on the wait list. And I end up having to just write a personal check and get reimbursed, you know, 17 years later by the state. And, you know, just just little things like keeping in mind how, you know, you're having an impact. And so, Drew, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on this topic as a whole, but I just think that the more discussion and dialogue we have on invitationals and the more AMTA chooses not to stay away from the issue and sort of embrace the issue a little bit more, I only think it can be a long-term benefit. Yeah, I think that uh, 50 minutes of us ranting to each other about why invitationals should change and why our tournaments are the best is enough for our listeners. So. Well, I, uh, as always, we welcome your thoughts. Uh, you know, at the end of the podcast, we always talk about how you can reach out. And if you've got invitational thoughts, you know, drop us a line. We're always looking to talk to more people about, you know, what your thoughts are on the AMP community as a whole. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into a quick discussion or quick uh, in the relative sense of how Drew and I have quick discussions on the merits of the tab card photography issue that we had a conversation with Will about. So after the break, we'll get into that. Welcome back to the Mock Review. For the next segment, we wanted to dive a little deeper into something that we touched upon during our discussion with AMTA President Will Warhey, and that is the publicizing of tab cards. So, Ben, we unfortunately never got to hear your thoughts on this issue. So just to start out, where do you fall? Do you think that publicizing tab cards is good? Do you think it's bad? Or do you think you're somewhere in the middle? It's a complicated question. There's there's no doubt about that. I think most people are in agreement that the motion that was filed uh, that's on the agenda, although it's been tabled for the upcoming board meeting to ban tab room card photography is probably not the way to go about approaching this issue. But I can tell you at Trial by Combat, I had a conversation with Mitch Pickerell, who uh, coaches Northern Illinois, and we're friends with their program. And he's one of the people who um, who wanted this motion to go forward. And his team's fly blind, and 
my team sometimes fly blind. I believe in flying blind and sometimes the students don't always, you know, go that way. I am not at all in favor of banning tab room photography, but I have some fairly serious concerns that I think align with some of the things Will was saying last week about respecting team's preferences. You know, when I competed in undergrad, we didn't fly blind. And then when I completed, competed in law school, my coach gave us no choice. And I became 100% convinced and still am that flying blind is the way to go about things. There's no doubt that there are lots and lots of teams, I think, including yours, Drew, that, that feel differently or approach things differently. And I really respect that. And, and teams can look at things different ways. When tab cards are put on social media, that is concerning to me because I think it's sort of my prerogative as a coach to decide how to do things for my team with the input of my students, of course. And when that decision is taken out of my hands, because realistically, and you know, my team listens to this podcast, they're great, I love them, but they're college students. If that information is available, they're going to look at it because I think that's just how competitors are. And I think even more, that's how college students are. So I don't have a problem with tab cards being photographed. I like as, you know, a gigantic mock trial dork to be able to follow other tournaments from afar. I think that's really interesting. I don't have a great solution for how to resolve the two, but I can tell you that when the tab cards were posted, I was not upset, for example, that, tab cards from the Lancaster Orcs were not as easy to access as some of the other ones because as a coach I want to be able like even when I tell my teams the results I oftentimes don't give them anywhere near as much detail as they could get from the tab cards because I want them focusing on the task in front of them so I don't have a problem with photography obviously of tab cards I do it you know and I ask for them from you know other coaches and things like that but putting them on social media is something that concerns me and I think we have to think as a community about what influence and effect that may have on coaches decisions for their teams so I'm actually going to take a staunch opinion uh, going the other way Ben and you know I, I really I want to say that I agree that we need to be respectful of of teams preferences of what they want but I think that that's the key it's it's what the teams want and as much as you may hate to hear this and many of our viewers may hate to hear this I don't think it's about what coaches want frankly if if a team wants to view their tab cards if they want to see how they're doing if they want to see their ballots I just think that like that's a conversation that a program needs to have with its coaches and with its members about what it wants to be doing you know, if there's a team where all of its members are really behind, yeah, we don't want to know our results. We want to focus on the next task at hand, and that's how we want to operate. Then I don't think that posting tab cards is harmful to them because those students aren't aren't tempted by that. They they don't want to know. But when students want to know and their coaches are intentionally keeping it from them, I, I get why coaches want to do that. I just think, and I'm not trying to undermine what any coach is trying to do. I'm more just saying that if coaches are so fearful about having tab cards posted that they think their students would go behind their back, I think that, that the bigger and more important thing is that those coaches need to have a conversation with their team about, hey, why do we go blind? Like, Is there a, a good reason behind this and some reason that I can convince you guys is a, a reason that you should? 
I'll, I'll say that I have friends from programs that do go blind and, you know, uh, they'll ask me like, Hey Drew, like, I know that you're probably going to know what our results are. You know, don't message me over the weekend. And of course I'm respectful of that. And I would never try to, you know, ruin results for them. But I think that, you know, students like that, they, they don't want to look at the tab cards. They'll, they'll maybe look at them later, but when they're at the tournament, they're taking it, you know, exactly as you said, and they're focusing on the next task at hand. And I don't really think that it's harmful to those teams. I think it is harmful to teams that their coaches don't fully trust their team members. And that's not to call anyone out, but it's just that to me, that's, that's what the true issue is. I, I think all of that is fair, but the thing I will say is if the tab cards are readily available on social media and your team is telling you that no one has looked at those tab cards, not everyone is telling the truth because, and that's, I'm not trying to call anyone a liar, but when you're sitting there and you're wondering what your record is and you had a really close round two and everyone's like, I don't know if we got that team, somebody's going to go look. It, it is just in my opinion, and maybe there are teams out there that would prove me wrong, but I think the overwhelming majority of the time posting the tab cards on social media so that anyone can see them at any time is going to make it essentially impossible for a team to fly blind. Uh, I get, and I get your point, right? That like, maybe it's an indictment on me as a coach that my students, and like I said, it's not a shot at my students. I have a great group of, of students, but maybe the fact that they push back on me flying blind shows and, and, you know, that I feel like they would probably look if the cards are there says something about me as a coach. But I think that, and this, this is probably not the most popular opinion amongst competitors, but if you're a program who has chosen to have a fairly heavily involved coach, like we have, you are choosing to recognize a certain degree of my coach knows a little bit better than me that when we have a strategy decision that we have to make and we've got two sides and ultimately they're like, coach, you make the decision that these programs are saying, okay, you have mock trial experience. You're a attorney. You're a little bit older. You know, you can make a good decision in this respect. And so when I think in some ways it is the job of a heavily involved coach to say, you don't like this, but it's better for you in the long run. And, and here's the thing. I don't really think hardly anyone wants to fly blind. There are some people that do, but I think most people want to know their results. And what I'm saying is in spite of that fact, in spite of people wanting to know their results as a person who didn't used to fly blind and then was forced to in law school, I learned very quickly to say, okay, I'm going into this tournament I'm not going to know how I'm doing. I don't care. I'm just going to focus on the trial in front of me. And then when it's all said and done, I can sort of come out from under the haze of this tournament and find out where things fall. But no matter what I know or don't know, it's not going to change anything about how I approach an individual round. Now, I'm not trying to sit here and say that people who disagree with that are necessarily wrong. Every different perspective on this issue has its, I think, positives and negatives. But I am concerned about the fact that if we get to a point where tab cards at every AMTA tournament are easy to find on social media, my perspective becomes impossible to implement. And that to me, although I, I even sort of like the fact that they'll be disseminated a lot, I'm a little concerned about the implication that could have on coaches like me who want to do things that way. 
So, at least from my perspective, Ben, and again, you know, this is someone coming from, you know, a competitor, and I haven't ever coached, and I, I hope to one day, but, you know, I haven't had that experience, so I don't know. But to me, I feel like one of the biggest jobs as a coach is to kind of get your team to buy in on your ideas. You know, it's, at the end of the day, I would hope teams aren't really run as like a dictatorship. And it's very much so, um, as you said, you know, there are two fields. Hey, coach, we need your help making this call. You know, we need someone to a third party to come in and help. Or it's, hey, you know, we need help consulting with, with this certain issue. But at the end of the day, you know, these are college students. And I mean, I, I like to think that college students are free thinking enough and smart enough, bright enough, especially if they're doing mock trial, that they can make these decisions on their own. I mean, student run programs exist and, and they can function. I think having a coach helps, but I don't think that I, 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 I'm going to push back against your idea that as a coach, Oh, I know best. And you should just blindly follow what I'm telling you. You know, I think that it's kind of a coach's job to to talk to their team and say, hey, I know you may not like it, but let me explain to you why what I'm telling you has merit and maybe convince them, hey, let's try it, see how it goes, see what you think of it. And if you don't, you know, we don't have to continue doing it because at the end of the day, this activity is for the students. It's for their benefit. And if they disagree with the coach's call on something, you know, that they – you know, to me that they should, they should have a right to. And and it's not that this is supposed to be designed for teams to disobey their coaches. I, I don't think that that's what any of the people that have been posting them are trying to do. But it, to me, I think that the tab room is already supposed to be a public room. It's supposed to be something that is accessible to anyone who wants it. And I think that this is just kind of widening that horizon to, to people that aren't in the active vicinity. And, you know, it, it's interesting because one of the things that you mentioned, Ben, was that, you, when you're not actually at the tournament, you like having the tab cards posted. Um, and I think that we can, we can both agree on a lot of the merits that it has to people that are outside of that tournament. And I feel like to a certain extent, that's what the tab cards are for is just for people outside of that tournament. In that if you're at the tournament, there's literally a room with them all there that you can go into and you know, no coach can ban their team members from going in. Now, obviously, it's a little bit harder if you are trying to, you know, hide from your coach when you do this. But, you know, Ben, you know, one of your team members could just as easily walk into that room and look at those tab cards as they would to, you know, pull out their phone and check it. I mean, let's talk about it. if you're at a courthouse, you know, probably a lot of courthouses don't let you have your any electronics on you when you're in trial. It's easier for them to go and check them by going into the tab room. So I guess that I, I, I understand a lot of the arguments. I just think that it's a lot of the arguments are kind of being made from coaches of teams. And this is, again, not to call anyone out, but coaches of teams where their team doesn't buy into their ideals. And I think that rather than AMTA making rules to enforce what those coaches want, it should be on those coaches to convince their teams and yeah, I just think that it's it's for the team to decide, not just the coach. The one thing I'll say to that, and and there are a lot of valid points in there, but I, I should be clear on something. I never liked flying blind. 
you know, like when you, when you use a word like, you know, that it's not, you know, your team tries it out and they don't like it. So we keep doing it. I don't really ever expect my team to like flying blind. You want to know when you finished a trial, if you won or lost. But what I'm saying is I'm of the opinion that I, you know, went from in my mental process, uh, and this is all subjective, of course, but from my mental process, I went from, oh, this is not great. This is going to mess me up to, I'm kind of PO'd at my coach about this to, oh, okay, I almost forgot there were ballots because I was so immersed. And yeah, when I left around, did I want to know if I won or lost? Of course I did. But I learned to to just know going into it, I'm not going to get to find out anyways. So just put that, compartmentalize it, put it away and you know use that space to worry about something else, to think about the performance I just did, to take in notes and feedback from my coach. And look, no one should run their team as a dictatorship. Every coach should take input from their students. If, you know, nothing else because they're college students and they'll revolt if you if you don't. But I, I think what I would love to find, and I don't know how it exists, if it exists, what I would love to find is a happy medium where people who are outside of the tournament environment can look at the tab cards, but it'd be challenging for a competitor at a tournament to access them on social media. I don't know how in the world that's possible, but I just want to make sure that as we grow and have more transparency, which is fantastic that we have respect for coaches and programs who really want to keep doing things that the way that they feel is best. So I have two responses, I think, to that, Ben. Um, the first is, as far as the happy medium you're talking about, I'm curious what you think about the way that uh, a lot of the tab cards were published um, the most in, in week three of Orcs, I believe, that was the the last ones that were published. I don't think that any were published, at least that I ever saw, for Nationals. And the ones that were published for week three of Orcs, uh, the way I believe it was done was there was basically like a uh, – uh, there were a couple of links to a PowerPoint that was like on a Google Slides and they had a couple of warnings like, hey, like don't look if you're blind. And then it like cut to the to – the, uh, the tab cards and it basically had a couple of layers of like hey don't check this if you're meant to go blind hey this is really for external use only and you know i i wonder if that you know do you think that was enough to to what you're saying i mean i think that you know it's not under lock and key obviously but it's i mean to me that that's discouraging enough of like you have to really be trying to find it to get there and if it's not something you're just going to stumble upon because I, I absolutely sympathize with I don't think that they should just be posted to Facebook where anyone's feed can pop up and show them and you go oh no I was trying to see how my friends back home were doing and I actually saw my tab card results you know totally understand that so I, I, I wonder if that's good enough and the other thing I want to just add before you respond to that is I, I will say that I do know people who whether they enjoy it or not they actively take a role in not finding out their results in that I have, I have group chats with me and other competitors that I'm friends with and we'll talk about results of, of individuals tournaments. And there are some of them that they go blind and they mute 
our group chat during their tournaments in which they are like, I don't want to know the results. And we will be talking about the tab cards that, that we're getting at, at that same tournament. And they are actively taking a role to, to not know what's going on. You know, again, I, I get what you're saying, Ben. I think that for most people, they're going to be more like you and more like me and that they want to know what's going on and they want to find out. But I think that there are coaches and there are programs that have been able to reach a point where they say, no, like we really value not knowing our results and we don't want to know them. And I think that that's a very realistic thing for teams to reach. And I think that that's what coaches should aspire to. And again, it's not to take away from coaches that, that can't. I think that you know, not every program, not every team is going to be able to. I think that you know, I'll tell you what, Ben, if you were my coach and I was on UMBC's team, I don't think you could ever convince me not to find tab results. I just, I, I really love them. I love reading them. And I don't think any coach could convince me otherwise, as we're seeing through these conversations. I don't think that makes you, know, you or anyone else a bad coach by any means of the imagination. But it, it goes to show that, you know, maybe if I'm on that team, that that's not a great team to go blind just because, you know, you've got a couple people that just refuse to, um, but if you have a team where everyone's like, yeah, you know, Ben, I, I see your point. I, I agree with you. You know, maybe there is a lot of benefit to me not knowing my results. Then that's a team where posting tab cards has absolutely no effect on them. To briefly respond to the second part of it first, I think my primary concern in that area is if I want to try it now, it's going to be a lot harder. That mm-hmm. like with the tab yeah, card fair. results readily available you know, th- these are the types of things that take years to implement. I think a lot of those programs were able to do it that way because over the course of three, four, five years, you get people in the program who've only known it a certain way and, and things like that. And, you know, I mean, we'll just agree to disagree on the, you know, merits of like, like you have to take your team's opinion into consideration. I am not trying to say that I'm, that I ignore my team's opinion. I think they know that's not the case, but if I've got a whole team of people who really want to look at their results, in a lot of ways, that tells me that I think maybe they shouldn't look at their results for, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Uh, just going back to you know motivations for why people want to know things. As to your, your first point, the way things were posted at the end was definitely better because it, it is a concern you know, that you could sort of stumble upon them. But I don't, I don't think it necessarily solves the, the ultimate problem you know, that, that I'm addressing. And, and the last thing I'll, I'll say is I don't necessarily even think we have a problem yet. You know, this was the first time that this had been done. I think it's a good thing to experiment with. Like I've said before, I love looking at tab cards. I really enjoyed looking at the tab cards from different tournaments, but I think it's good to have these discussions and to hear from coaches from every side and to understand that like emotion, the one that's going to be considered or is tabled, but it's technically on the agenda for this weekend Maybe is too broad, but I talked to the coach who's partially responsible for that motion, and he comes from a place of wanting what's best for his own team and spending as much time. I mean, he's similar to me where, you know, he spends hours and hours every week around his students and feels like he's got a pretty good grasp of what's useful and and good for them. So it's an interesting discussion. I think you make a lot of really valid points, and a lot of people will agree with that, Uh, but I think it's encouraging that there's this much activity and discussion going on around the whole thing. Yeah, Ben, I just want to echo what you were saying. I, I definitely agree from the perspective that I, I think that there are a lot of valid points that are made on both sides. And, you know, agreeing to disagree, I think, is a place that I, I'm happy to come to. I think that 
it, at the end of the day, this is it's a difficult issue because there are absolutely pros and cons to both. I absolutely understand where coaches are coming from. Um, and I, I will say that, you know, they may not be as outspoken, but I know competitors that have not been the biggest fan of the posting of tab cards because, you know, they buy into, you know, not viewing them and they don't want to see them and they, they get the value that that has. Um, so I don't, I don't want to make it seem like this is a, a competitors versus coaches issue. I, I don't think that it is. Uh, I do, I do think that, that you're right though, Ben, that there, there is some, something that we need to, some point that I think would be awesome to reach in, with AMTA where we can kind of solve both issues of if you're not at the tournament, you get to see them, but if you are there, maybe some way to, to close it off even more, um, I, I'm not aware of a way, but hopefully someone can come up with something clever. Uh, that being said, in just the global scope, we didn't really talk that much about what's cool about it. Um, the amount of activity, j- just the fact that our podcast has gotten the number of views that it has, I think goes to show just the the fact that the mock trial community is a growing one, and it's one that likes to talk about mock trial. And Part of that is through the tab cards, discussing how the tab cards went. And I I think that's a really cool thing that whatever the board decides, I hope that that never goes away. And um, I, I just think that even if, if we decide to have some modification to help encourage teams that are blind to stay that way, I would hope that there's never a point where we ban the publishing of tab cards in its entirety, just because I think that it's bringing so much to the community and it's, it's a really cool thing to be a part of. I I agree with that sentiment. I think that at the end of the day, we want to encourage this community to have more togetherness and camaraderie. And I think that the more information is disseminated around that respect, the better. And I guess that isn't a shocking perspective for the two hosts of a mock trial podcast to have, But as we've proven, we can sit here and talk about these issues for hours. However, we probably should reach an endpoint at some point, given that our podcast could be four or five hours long each week if we actually recorded everything we talked about. But we want to thank everybody for joining us for another episode of the Mock Review. Uh, Coming from me, Ben, I'm really looking forward to sitting through my first board meeting this week, hoping to bring lots of interesting content related to that. And, you know, we'll have future episodes as the case gets closer to being released to dig into a lot of those things. And, you know, before you all know it, you're going to be digging into that case and starting to get ready for, you know, crazy early invitationals like the Charm City Classic and and others. So (laughs) thanks, everyone, so much for joining us for another episode of the Mock Review with Ben and Drew. And we will talk to you soon.